0: Pardon the absence of an episode yesterday on Tuesday out of respect, obviously, for the victims and their families in Texas. Definitely my heart goes out to them. It's unspeakable what transpired in that town and wanted, obviously, to not put out any content with respect to that because I don't like anything to coincide with horrific events. Today, briefly, 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 I have some updates. First and foremost, I'm going to preview my review of Alex Epstein's latest book, Fossil Future. I'm also going to talk about an interesting update that I've been sounding the alarm on with respect to the Forest Service suspending the prescribed burn program nationally on all national forest lands for 90 days. And we're going to top it off with, unfortunately, another disappointing news item relating to something here germane to this region, the Chesapeake, where for the first time in 33 years, there's been a depreciation in terms of blue crab numbers. And we're going to explain why that is. Yesterday, Alex Epstein, who bills himself as a philosopher, he has grown into an energy subject matter expert across the years that he's been doing this And just released his latest book, a runner-up to his first very successful book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which was a New York Times bestseller released in 2014. Now, he has this book as kind of a supplemental piece of writing called Fossil Future. And it is starting to gain a lot of traction. And I was very lucky to get an advanced copy, as I alluded to in the introduction. And I just finished reading it quite literally this afternoon well into the early evening. I've been having a lot going on for me, so I wasn't reading it as quickly as I could. But I want to give you some key takeaways of what you can expect if you read it, if you decide to purchase the book or get it from a friend or subscribe to Alex's energy talking points. But it couldn't come at a better time given the crisis we're having with energy prices, gasoline, just where energy policy is going. This book, came out at the perfect time. And I'm not saying that's something you should relish, but he really explains into detail why our future, despite the talks of going net zero, decarbonizing, fully transitioning to solar and wind and other very unreliable means of energy, why our futures will still be heavily influenced by fossil fuels, What's interesting, a first takeaway that I want you all to get from just this brief overview of what I surmise from reading his latest book, he talks about both the costs and the benefits of fossil fuels. I think that's something we don't hear. We don't hear about the benefits. His conclusion is that even with all the costs weighed and even with continued use of fossil fuels, the benefits from that usage will continue to heavily outweigh the costs. Empirical data as to why that's the case. And he's honest, obviously, about the costs and says as human flourishing continues, those costs are going to be ameliorated and they're going to be lessened because we're going to innovate and we're going to force ourselves to use fossil fuels in a far cleaner fashion, even more than what we have now. Here's the second key takeaway from Fossil Future he talks about the shortcomings of alternatives. So he says that 80% of consumption and production of energy is through fossil fuels. You see this also evidenced on Department of Energy website, statistic pages, EIA. We're still heavily reliant on fossil fuels. Even the government record shows it. And he says that alternatives like solar and wind only account globally for 3% of energy. And they won't go anywhere near the level of fossil fuels anytime soon, especially. And then he breaks down viable alternatives like hydroelectric power, nuclear. He and I disagree a little bit on geothermal. I think geothermal can be interesting. Uh, he says that there are still some shortcomings while it is a little bit better than solar and wind. And then he really breaks down kind of the problems with solar and wind given intermittency, given just like so many subsidies and loans are placed to elevate these two in particular, and they have vast shortcomings. They come at a greater cost and they don't really have net benefits for land use and consumption. So he makes those arguments as well. Some of you listening may disagree. I do believe in an all of the above energy approach, but as it stands right now, I think we can still lean heavily on fossil fuels. Alex makes the same argument, but he comes out more Unabashedly against solar, and when I think than most people, and I think it's good he p- highlights it because you see the shortcomings in California in 2020, in Texas in 2021, when people fully rely on these alternatives which haven't been tried and tested, and they're still backed by the purse of government with these subsidies, they're not really enhanced by the market, not really coming into play in the market. People realize that there are shortcomings with it, so he breaks down a lot of the alternatives why different interests are opposed to the alternatives, which can be viable, like nuclear and hydroelectric power and what the fallacies of their arguments are. And then I get a, I guess a third takeaway, because like I said, I don't want to spoil it for you. I really want you to read the book and I want you to read my more comprehensive review that I'll be putting out on Friday. I think he talks about a positive vision for fossil fuels. And then he also challenges readers to share the knowledge, to frame things in a positive way, not really use the language of radical preservationists, but to talk about how human flourishing will be even more possible through continued use of fossil fuels. I hope this is an incentive for you to read the book, check it out, follow him on social media, learn more about his work, and what conversation he's trying to start with this book. And he's a very serious guy. He's not an alarmist. So I think even those who lean to the left politically, and I think even some preservationists may be open-minded to reading his work, dissecting what he has to say and giving it consideration. He is known to change hearts and minds on the issue. So great book. I will, like I said, have that review for you all midnight on Friday. And I think Alex is open to coming back on the podcast. And if you want to hear our previous conversation in the show notes, you can find our previous conversation from late last year. It was actually received quite well, and it has almost a thousand views on YouTube if it hasn't already hit that threshold yet. So you can watch both the YouTube version and also listen to the audio component from District of Conservation. This is a very interesting development from the U.S. Forest Service which is a subsidiary of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It actually should be under Department of Interior, and it was on its way to becoming positioned differently under a different purview under the last administration, but unfortunately that change did not come to fruition. But U.S. Forest Service announced in wake of the tragic high-intensity fires that are plaguing New Mexico, I actually caught a glimpse of some of the fires that were raging and that are still are playing out from 30,000 feet when I was on my flight to Phoenix on May 11th. Catching a glimpse of that was quite harrowing. I'm used to wildfires or knowing about wildfires, having grown up in Southern California. And the West is constantly plagued by high intensity fires. And this decision from the U.S. Forest Service troubles me, if I'm going to be honest with you all. The chief forest director, chief forest service director, Randy Moore, has says that they are going to be reviewing the prescribed burn program, which is a very successful program, a preventative measure used to combat fire suppression, to help strengthen the health of forests, and to prevent high-intensity fires from happening. So I'm scratching my head, I think, like most observers, As to why they're doing it, we're going to read their justification and then I'll add a little bit of analysis as to why I think that's wrong-headed. In an official statement, Chief Moore says the following. Prescribed fire plays an important role in forest management. These burns are intended to reduce hazardous fuel loads caused by debris that has built up in the forest understory, thereby reducing wildfire risk. And they top the list of essential tools managers need to use for improving forest conditions. Yet climate change, drought, dry fuels throughout the country and other factors have led to increasingly extreme wildfires. So we must change the way we make decisions about when and where to burn. It is imperative not only to understand what happened in relation to recent prescribed fire escapes, but also to ensure that our prescribed program nationwide is anchored in the most contemporary science policies, practices, and decision-making processes. Scrolling down a little bit more, prescribed fire is an important tool and we conduct an average of 4,500 prescribed fire projects annually go according to plan. That equals slightly more than one escape per every 1,000 prescribed fires, or about six escapes per year, but we can always improve. And this is weird departure here because the Biden administration announced their plan to address forest health. And I wrote about this at IWF if you're curious to read this, and they want to treat and restore 50 million acres across 10 years, I argue that there is not enough time to do that. You have to tackle that issue sooner. And they're actually undercounting how many acres deserve immediate treatment. It's about 80 million, according to most available data. So they won't be treating all necessary acres that require treatment. And with the subject of these escapes of prescribed burns, I'm going to read for you briefly from NPR, National Public Radio, who actually had a very good piece about this and said that the decision to stop the program pending a 90-day review at the height of what is to be perhaps a very, very tough fire season to have this potentially be suspended through what, August 20th? What if they prolong it? Fires could break out sooner if these measures are not enacted. Fires can break out sooner if prescribed burn regimens are not carried out. They pull someone named Rebecca Miller. She's a scholar with the University of Southern California's The West on Fire Project. And Miller is quoted as saying that fire escapes, intentional fire escapes, is hard to come by in terms of hard data. And she is quoted also as saying When we see a prescribed burn, as in New Mexico, that escapes and becomes a massive wildfire that threatens communities, that prompts concerns about the safety of prescribed burns of this very, very important tool, she says, adding the vast, vast, vast majority of prescribed burns are conducted safely. Do not escape and you'll never hear about them. The article continues with Miller's comments. Hard data on just how often intentional fire escapes their boundaries is hard to come by. But Miller says estimates from the early 2000s show that fewer than 1% of prescribed burns might escape to become a major wildfire. She is quoted as saying, so we're talking a really, really small percentage. That's all I needed to know. I hope that's what you all needed to know too. And you don't suspend a wildly successful program because one fire escaped. Now, maybe some forestry experts will disagree. I don't have a degree in forestry and you don't need to, to assess the situation, but Initial chatter from what I'm hearing, it's angering a lot of people across the country outside of the West. Florida is a state that has popularized and perfected the art of prescribed burns. So impactful that California is even looking to them for inspiration. I wrote about this in my IWF policy focus and prescribed burns to suspend it because one fire did not go as planned It could have very serious consequences. They're going to bear a lot of responsibility if high intensity fires break out. With this suspension coming in, I think this is ill advised, especially in line with the executive order they released on Earth Day. Like, why are they backtracking? I mean, this administration unfortunately has a history of talking a great talk on conservation, but when it comes to action, they put out really kind of half baked plans or they pursue action that is deleterious to nature and people. Again, I would love to be proven wrong, but I'm a pessimist and I don't see anything good coming out of this decision with respect to areas that are vulnerable to high intensity fires. Another important update that I will close this episode with today. This is germane to us in the mid Atlantic. If you also reside in Virginia, Maryland, Delmarva too, if you live on the coastal parts of Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, our beloved blue crab is unfortunately suffering a setback with Respect to their population numbers. And this update comes from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, who I sometimes disagree with. I think sometimes when they veer into the very explicitly political, they kind of lose me. But when it comes to crab conservation, we're totally on the same page. But they wrote in a statement issued on May 19th that the Marine Resources Commission of Virginia and Maryland Department of Natural Resources have released the studies have released the results of the 2022 Blue Crab Winter Dredge Survey, an annual estimate of population of blue crabs in the Chesapeake and its tributaries. And their survey, unfortunately, found that there's only a total crab abundance of 227 million, the lowest in the survey's 33-year history. Do you guys remember a few years ago they had said that they had accounted for 500 million? What happened? I'm going to continue. They say that the adult female and male populations both decreased with males also at record lows and the number of juvenile crabs continuing a troubling three-year-below-average trend in recruitment. One of their regional ecosystem scientists, Chris Moore, had said that they believe that the results of this year's survey continue a worrying trend for blue crabs in the Chesapeake Bay region, The continued low abundance of juveniles and adult males indicates the urgent need for action to protect these segments of the population. Continuing down a little bit, they say this year's survey follows two consecutive years of declines in the coverage of underwater grasses, one of the most important habitats for blue crabs in the Chesapeake Bay. It is likely that the loss of grasses is contributing to the crabs decline, along with water quality challenges and, believe it or not, this is my insertion, Predation by invasive blue catfish. This is a big problem. Blue catfish, if you guys don't know, there's actually bounties for them. You have to read into the law on that in terms of dabbling into commercial fishing. You need to research that. I'm not gonna give you advice on how to do that, but catch blue catfish, save the blue crab. That's, I think, a takeaway from this. But the blue crab plays an integral role in our economy. People eat crab cakes. They eat cream of crab soup. They eat the vegetable broth crab soup. It's an integral component to the region, ecologically, economically, and to see their numbers down at pretty historic lows, it's quite disconcerting. I hope people don't go to extreme means. I hope there could be reasonable solutions found to addressing the crab problem. Usually, you'll see organizations like this say, well, because of climate change, we have to do this, and da da da. But I think you can steep away from that and propose reasonable solutions like getting rid of blue catfish and helping to promote underwater grasses. People will go along with that. Don't scare people away from crab conservation with alarmist rhetoric. If you just talk about the issues, you'll get people on board. We'll keep tabs on the results from this recent survey and see what will be done. But yeah, after seeing historic numbers to see this, Something needs to change. I bet you some people will say, well, Governor Yunkin coming into office is probably the contributing factor to this. He's only been in office for a few months, so slow your brakes on blaming him if you're rushing to blame someone. This has been, like they said, a few years in the making. Although, like I said, they had an all-time record a few years ago, 500 million crabs, doing really well. Crab populations are an indicator. They're like an indicator species for the Chesapeake Bay's health. The more prevalent they are, the more we can see how healthy the bay is. And so we do want to get those numbers up. I hope they don't prohibit crab harvesting. That wouldn't make any sense, like I said. But because of supply chain issues, it's probably going to be harder for watermen to do crabbing like they did in the past. So much to be concerned about. We love blue crabs, and let's hope a solution can be reached on this end. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to us on your preferred podcast player. We recommend Apple Podcasts, where over 60% of our listenership hails from. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, which don't really populate, but follow us on social media to make sure you never miss a beat or a guest announcement. You can also find us on Cfax website under District of Conservation, under my profile, Gabriella Hoffman. To catch up on all different past episodes there if you like what you hear be sure to leave us a five-star review on apple or wherever podcasts are played share the links leave your reviews and tell your friends about the show thanks for listening today stay tuned for more district of conservation episodes